one of us has an inherent need to believe in something. It's what helps us get out of bed each morning, sets the parameters of our everyday living and gives us our values, whatever they may be. But go back far enough through history and you'll find that magic and mysticism were at the forefront of everyday living. You may even go so far as to say that many people were controlled by the supernatural, both for good and for evil. This was a time when people needed a support system, something to believe in and trust to help them, something to help explain the world around them, but most importantly, to help protect them from harm. There were no hospitals, trained doctors or pristine medicines, only the bounty of nature's gifts that could be compounded from what was around them. Belief, magic, mysticism, call it what you will, these were what people turned to. And evil spirits lurked everywhere, inhabiting trees, bushes, streams, crossroads, windows, as well as the hearth of the home. And their remedy was to take action. And take action they did, in many forms, one of which was embroidery, that became part of their visual language. It was storytelling for all to see, educated or uneducated. But within that embroidery was power. The power of magic. Embroidery and costume played a protective role in both the physical and spiritual safekeeping of many. It was a worldwide phenomenon, ranging from ancient Greece to modern Europe. Much of this magic seems to have been steeped in a little common sense, with a lot of magic thrown in for good measure. What mother doesn't want to protect her small child? What new bride doesn't want to dispel any evil spirits from her wedding? Who wants sickness to visit their home? And in some ways, we carry on some of these traditions still. Do we know why? Perhaps many of those meanings are now lost, but it's not so important now as it was then. And symbols, motives, patterns, placement, asymmetry, colours, shapes, reflection, repetition and even noise were all factors in creating these magical embroideries. When you really look into this topic, the symbolism of the embroidery and patterns always seems to have contained some form of hidden meaning. It had purpose. It was like a coded message that served as a charm, offering protection, good luck or prosperity. Stitch Safari listeners, this is a time to look at your inner spiritual self. Walk back in time with me as I explore the remarkable world of, uh, of the power of embroidery and magic. A world, let me assure you, that still exists today in one form or another. And with thanks to Shakespeare's Macbeth. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, fillet of a fenny snake in the cauldron boil and bake. 
eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, adder's fork and blime worm's sting, lizard's leg and howler's wing, for a charm of powerful trouble, like a hill broth, boil and bubble. Let's see what we can uncover. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. I adore pattern, but now after this research I have an even deeper appreciation and understanding of the worldwide use of pattern, particularly when applied through the use of embroidery. With uh, origins from primitive man to ancient mythology such as Celtic, Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Old English sources, embroidered patterns were used to great effect to ward against evil spirits. And within those myriad patterns lies significant meaning. The triangle, zigzag, rhombus, labyrinth, crescent, circle, moon, stars, as well as the simple cross were pattern powerhouses and they each had multiple associations. Take the triangle. It defines the female sexual region evoking fertility, but it's also a symbol of the powerful trinity seen in many religions and these symbols are often found on prehistoric pottery that used zigzags and chevrons. Pattern was also inspired from the animal world using fish, birds, hands, eyes, snakes and even the powerful horn along with many more. And many patterns that were deemed most powerful against the evil eye came from ancient cults. The Paleolithic ram's horn motif came from primitive hunting societies and can be seen worked into small isolated embroidered, uh, embroidered patterns on numerous garments. But if you're looking for potent symbols of the cosmic forces, look no further than the sun and moon or circles. On the fronts of dresses in Bethlehem and Jerusalem, the circle within a circle motive was known as angel eyes. The Berbers of the High Atlas in Morocco actually used the evil eye as a pattern in itself, creating a dramatic back to their hooded woolen cloaks. Using triangular and zigzag patterns in the weaving and embroidery, the design stretched from the hem across the entire back of the garment. That must have meant mega protection. And my beloved paisley pattern, that well-known motif from Mughal India via Persia, is also associated with the circle. It was believed to hold the soul bird as the sun held the soul, with the added power to ward against witchcraft. What a beautiful analogy. 
Now, who'd think to use numbers as a design device, but they were also considered effective against witchcraft. Used alone, doubled in threes, sevens, or even in twelves or multiples thereof, these repetitions often appeared on coifs, those magical medieval headdresses. And there's an association, uh, and here there's an association with Christianity. The three is seen as the Trinity and the seven, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. But there's no doubt they came from earlier sources. Hands and fish also featured in Paleolithic art, used from Eastern Asia to Europe to protect and bring good luck. And in 1922, when Howard Carter first entered Tutankhamun's tomb, I'm sure he noticed the small linen headkerchief dating from 1350 BC, combining embroidery with prophylactic materials. Applicate circles, strips and rectangles along with decorative chain stitch and motives of snakes as well as the added power of metal discs, flat circular beads and tassels must have been thought to have contained great power for the boy king. Shells, coins and beads have held a persistent belief to be able to heal and avert evil and were made to be able to be stitched onto clothing. But it's mirrors that are believed to have the ability to trap the evil eye. Uh, they were placed in strategic areas to provide a focal point or were isolated and surrounded by embroidery, used by both Islamic and Indian cultures on garments and even in buildings. Now, this is the one I love. It's like performance art used to confuse the evil spirits. Can you guess? It's sound. Just imagine thousands of coins or metal discs tinkling on garments as the wearer moves. Add some alternating colour, tassels and pom-poms and that evil eye couldn't help but be confused. Little bells, sil uh, silver discs, even thimbles were sewn onto garments and in hot countries that gentle noise was considered cooling. It was also used to gain the attention of a suitor. What a delicious thought. So now we know the power of pattern, but that power could easily be strengthened by doubling or repeating it, stitching it strategically onto garments, then adding protective materials such as tassels, shells, beads, coins, sequins or mirrors. And it didn't stop there. Asymmetrical patterns used alone were especially powerful because they confused the evil spirits and in Eastern European countries under Ottoman rule, a single pattern was often left unfinished, symbolising the Islamic desire to leave something imperfect, a sentiment often associated with Amish quilters. So, if we look at some of the patterns used, both simple and intricate, it's easy to see associations with patterns that are still in use today. For instance, the symbol for the simple wheat ear means plenty, a pattern used on King Charles' mantle at his recent coronation, and I believe also on his mother's wedding dress uh, just after World War II. 
The eye pattern means protection. The wheel, peace. A leaf pattern relates to vitality and a snail to evolution. It goes on and on. But my point is that many of these patterns are still used today. Do we look at them and think of magic? Probably not, but their symbolic origins are definitely deeply rooted in magic, myths, shamanism, legends, fables, fairy tales or folklore of some sort. And these patterns and motives are often handed down from generation to generation, reflecting the history and culture of their ancestors, maintaining those myths and legends, their values and as a connection to and reverence for the spirit world as well as their natural environment. The Miao women of southwest China stitch vibrantly embroidered dragons, chickens, butterflies, ducks, lions and dogs as well as people. Good fortune is expressed using fish and spiders representing their guardian ancestors, whereas flowers celebrate abundance and vitality. Sometimes designs appear of animals with human heads or multiple animals combined together. It doesn't matter because it tells a story the Miao people understand. In eastern Siberia, witches were believed to use the loops made by the embroidery threads to ensnare the souls of people in their presence. But in the Islamic world, embroidery was used to combat the dreaded evil eye. And battle against the evil eye took a three-pronged attack, honing in on any three aspects of embroidery uh, decoration considered to be the most effective. These included the placement of the embroidery itself, the assertive mystical power of the patterns used, repeating those patterns, employing shiny objects that dazzled and made the evil eye blink, including anything that tinkled to distract the evil eye, using triangular shaped objects that reflected the power of the trinity and the feminine mystique, embracing alternating colours along edges and by creating asymmetrical patterns where the evil eye became confused and eventually lost its way. German bridal dresses of Lindnorst, for example, have the back of the head entirely hung with mirrors attached to ribbons, all to avert the evil eye but they must have also made a very pretty tinkling sound. And when you think about it, even today, some of these things make a modicum of sense, which is probably why they were employed in the first place. Embroidery also had a particularly protective role to play in general costume. From Asia to Western Europe, decorative devices were utilised at every edge and opening, encircling the neck, around pockets, hems and cuffs, and also around those cheeky little buttonholes. Decorative stitching was used to close seams and also cover certain vulnerable places such as the front bodice, shoulders and sleeves, not to mention the sexual area at and the centre back. In these cases, the embroidery was designed to protect each specific and significant part of the body separately. The embroidery wasn't meant to intermingle. 
Universally regarded as magical was hair. It was the life force of a person, particularly in the Judeo-Christian and Native American traditions. Snakes in the Paracas culture shared the supernatural power of hair and serpentine patterning was used to decorate burial turbans. Children's skull caps were ornately embroidered, hung with coins and amulets and as many believed the source of life lay in the ear, special protection was provided by heavily patterned embroidery, along with triangular amulets of fabric or embroidered crosses positioned directly over the child's ear. Any mother can relate to wanting to protect their child, so again this makes some sense. Figurines dating from 3000 BC from Turkestan and a Russian stone statue from the 11th to 12th century display heavy shoulder ornamentation. This has been replicated throughout history using embroidery. Rivers have always been believed to hold magical powers and the shoulder area of Romanian shifts were thickly embroidered in bands separated by other bands of fine pulled work, brocading or pastel coloured embroidery along with even more bands of narrow vertical or diagonal lines of small embroidered patterns that continue down to the cuff. These bands were known as rivers and many a village had a swift river flowing through it. The associations are there for all to see. The ubiquitous apron, a must in most European peasant costumes, is symbolically protective and not practical. Its purpose was to protect the body. Ritualistically, in Transylvania, the apron was worn inside out for mourning. In Hungary, unmarried men and bridegrooms wore it as part of their costume. But its main associated, uh, association was with marriage. Women changed the style of their apron to declare their status as a married woman. In Greece, young women each embroidered 20 to 40 aprons during their youth with designs that included the serpent, the moon and the cross. It showed a woman's social status and was imbued with magical properties. This is such an amazing topic and it's so universal and relatable because we still use many of these symbols today. But wait, there's more. Let's not forget edgings or patches on clothing too. A hole or gap could easily be covered by an applique motive. And in Hungary, sheepskin coats using such patches were known as witch patches. Now we all know that one of the roles of decorative embellishment can be to strengthen and in Palestinian co uh, costume, the back hem is the most significant Zigzag appliques are used to make good, forming a row of powerful protective triangles. Seams didn't miss out and stitches that straddled both pieces of fabric were used with the added power of alternating colours. And pockets used the asymmetrical prospect of another protective power of embroidery placement Sometimes they were placed out of alignment to distract the evil eye and sometimes 
they were false to confuse the bad spirits even more. In the Carpathians and Alpine regions, men's pocket slits were detailed with floral patterning. The same embroidery used around house windows to protect the occupants from illness and demons with the power of their magic. In Yemen, women's robes frequently featured another protective device in the form of some intricate pattern worked inside the hem. When the garment moved, a dazzling effect occurred. Triangular amulets and sparkling sequins only increased the power of these designs, hidden from sight under the back hem. But what about the home? Thresholds of tents or houses are considered sacred and are the perfect place for decoration to help safeguard the home. In 1253, Friar William of Rubruck travelled to Central Asia noting the hangings depicting vines, trees, birds and beasts were hung as protection over doorways. In 1246, the Mongol Great Khan's ambassador, Carpini, noted uh, felt images of men on each side of tent doorways, with writings mentioning the Scythian practice of sewing a linen pocket near doorways to receive the bounties of wandering spirits. It's common nowadays in many countries to see sacred symbols used above doorways, including swastikas, fish, solar circles and crosses. The Bedouin use red rags tied at the entrance of their tents. A cross-stitch pattern of red fabric is used in uh, a Mongolian yurt. Rice flour decorates the threshold floor in uh, Bengal as thanksgiving for the safety of the house. These same symbols are also embroidered onto canthers. In Luxembourg, doors are carved with the Tree of Life, sun discs, crosses and arrows, and in Central Asia, Suzanis, in Egypt, portiers, swathe doorways. The spot right opposite the threshold usually forms the core of the home, displaying the family altar or the best bed covered with the finest embroideries. Embroideries are also hung on beams opposite the threshold of a family's, uh, that shows the family's textile wealth piled together and covered uh, with yet more embroidery. In the Dodecanese Islands, bed curtains are used on the doorways to uh, bed tents, showcasing a concentration of embroidery using figurative motives including birds, goddesses, stags, boats or two-headed eagles. But what about colour? We all know colour's symbolic associations and that they can vary widely from culture to culture along with societal expectations. Yet there are three colours that are considered basic to the human state, according, uh, according to Sheila Payne in her book Embroidered Textiles, and these are red, white and black. And although interpretations of their symbolism may differ, white traditionally denotes purity and the celestial. It recalls the potency of mother's milk and of semen, while black is associated with excreta and earth and denotes decay. 
The roles of black and white are used symbolically in costume, yet don't appear to play a similar, uh, similar role in embroidery. Red is power. It, it's exhilarating and vibrant. It's the blood of life and of death, so is deemed ambiguous. Life, fire, the sun and power are counterbalanced by sacrifice and death. It's the colour most associated with spirit worship and demons, with youth, marriage, talismanic charms and secret powers, and predominates in tribal embroidery being used to both protect and to mark. Embroidery was once considered a ritual. It may have been conducted alone, in groups or on certain days, but the outcome was always the same to channel positive energy and good thoughts into the work. And it was that ancient language of symbols that offered both connection and expression that transcended the limitations of language. Imagery was the basis of communication and embroidery the vehicle. Evidence suggests that the magic a magical realm of dreams and magic, our subconscious prefers to use symbols in our personal and universal associations. And embroidery imbued with magic was the connection between the personal and innovative essence of divine powers. It was the means of merging these two experiences. These divine meanings have travelled across time and cultures and became a language that helped people understand or make sense of their known world, many showcasing similarities throughout the evolution of mankind, yet matching perfectly with a willingness to accept magic and a belief in its ability to enact change or offer new possibilities. Is that how we look at embroidery today? Perhaps we should. This is such a fascinating topic. I don't know about you, but I'll forever look at embroidery designs with much greater respect after this research. And for those who, like me, love a great book, Sheila Payne's book, Embroidered Textiles, A World Guide to Traditional Patterns, published by Thames and Hudson, London in 1990 and 2008, was a fascinating resource for this episode. As always, thank you for your time. Uh, I love having you here and it's truly appreciated. Tell your friends to tune in and subscribe and let's make 2023 the best year ever. Stitch Safari's now reached over 15,000 downloads and that's all thanks to you. It's also been mentioned as one of the 20 best embroidery podcasts of 2021 by Warp Magazine, listed as one of the top shows about embroidery by Repod in 2022, recorded in the top five, uh, top five textile industry podcasts you must follow in 2023 by Feedspot and listed globally in the top 10% by Listen Notes. And I'm extremely grateful. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast because there's just so much more to discover and it's all so fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website so do head on over. 
Till the next exciting episode of Stitch Safari and our next inspiring adventure into stitch, embroidery and design. Bye for now.